you know, today pathologists do merge data, right? They do an H&E, they do maybe some IHCs, and then they get maybe an NGS report or a PCR report. So their job is to take all this data and kind of manually cobble it together. Uh, but right to do this with spatial multiomic data, it's, it's impossible without digital pathology and computational uh, pathology. And whole site imaging is really the foundation of this. So, so this is some of the basis of excitement around uh, the adoption of digital pathology. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. I've said before that this is an exciting time to be in pathology, and I think we're going to see the field evolve in the next five to 10 years. My guest is Dr. Keith Wharton, and today we're going to talk about some of the new technologies we're going to see in the not too distant future. This is a wide ranging discussion about digital and computational pathology, multiplex staining, companion diagnostics and drug development, and why it's absolutely crucial that pathologists are involved in these developments. All right, here is Dr. Keith Wharton. Let's kind of go all the way back to the beginning then to going into college. And I know in college you studied chemical engineering. And I'm curious about that. Like, what did you uh, hope to do in that field? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, my, you know, my dad was a mechanical engineer. And I had, so I had some idea of what engineering as a field was all about. I was really good at science, math, and, and chemistry. And I really, in high school, hung out with what I would call the nerd crowd. Great people, but also had some, some really great, inspiring teachers. So I think um, I, I picked, looking back, I, I picked chemi with the goal of, of kind of modeling the human body and disease as a chemical reactor, learning the tools, uh, you know, mathematical, computational, practical, how to do that. So in college, I did a lot of programming uh, and I had projects writing program for actually a, a crystallographer as an undergrad. My senior project was in capillary fluid flow uh, simulations. Can you tell me a little about that senior project? That 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 sounds that sounds actually pretty interesting. Sure, um, this was a collaboration between the Department of Chemical Engineering and Department of Physiology. It worked with uh, Joseph Gross and, and Tim Seckham. They were sort of pioneers in modeling how red blood cells flow through tight spaces and deform, kind of the micro rheology of that. So. Uh, the, the project was was really to to take some input parameters and model a simulation and then see how that compared with uh, actual measurements and, uh, for example, a cat uh, mesentery uh, capillary bed. So, you know, so it was it was the kind of thing. And I'll just say this is we'll, we'll go in, you know, in a certain direction, I think, with this talk, tell you about my, you know, what, what I learned at that time. But I guess I felt like, again, this was really. It was interesting, but it didn't really capture my imagination uh, as, as something that would change uh, medical care. So I, you know, I felt like it was, you know, I'd learned something from it. I was appreciative, but I, I was looking for something else at that point. It, it does sound like, though, like your work in chemical engineering. I mean, it was as applied to the human body, which suggests kind of a, a medical interest there. Well, they didn't have biomedical engineering really as a major then. So I did have something called an oh. emphasis in that. But that, as you probably know, that's a really popular major nowadays for yeah. uh, you know young folks interested in engineering and medicine, a biomedical engineering major. At that time, it was mostly just really referring to medical devices, which frankly, I had much less interest in at that point. 
Yeah, I can understand that. All right. So then how did, uh, how did medical school come into the picture? Like what was the inspiration for that? Yeah, thanks. I, um, so I recently ran into a high school friend and, and, you know, I, he probably remembers more about me than, than I do of me, but he, he said that he remembers talking to me and, and me telling him that medical research was a goal. So I, I somehow knew about that pretty early on. Uh, but then, as I said, I learned that the computer modeling part, at least at that time in history, was was kind of a waste of time. You know, we didn't know the system or the key components, particularly those that drove most diseases. So, frankly, I would say it was cool, but not useful. So, uh, you know, during undergrad, I took pre-med classes. I volunteered in a hospital. Uh, and ultimately, the role models I had were more MDs than, than PhDs. So I was not really interested in graduate school uh, at that point. Um, I got rejected from medical school the first time. So for a year, I did. Uh, animal and clinical research with a cardiologist. Uh, his name was Frank Marcus. And sadly, he recently passed away in his mid-90s. Uh, he was a professor at the University of Arizona and uh, just real inspiration and, and a, a venerated person there. Uh, so I started med school in 1986. And then as I learned you know, the, from the fire hose of, of knowledge, all the facts that you need to learn to become a physician, I, I really found myself not just questioning a lot of it. Like, where did it come from? You know, how do they really know? And, and so I became fascinated just with the burgeoning field of molecular biology. So I was fortunate to get uh, two different NIH fellowships, uh, first in the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and then in a Howard Hughes Medical Sp- Institute-sponsored program, actually in, in Tony Fauci's group at, at the NIAID uh, under uh, Uli Siebenlist. Uh, we studied genes induced during uh, T cell activation. It was really a fantastic experience. We cloned out uh, chemokines, CCL3 and CCL4. I cloned a transcription factor, uh, NR4A1. Uh, there was a really amazing journal club there with uh, some, you know, really <laughs> incredibly smart, well-trained, uh, you know, junior folks. Kathy Kelly actually was uh, married uh, to Uli. Uh, Lou Stout, Carl June. I met some of the luminaries of immunology at that period in history, uh, William Paul, uh, Tom Waldman. I kind of call these the gods of immunology. Uh, I transferred to UCLA Med School to be with my wife to, for, so she could attend business school, and I was lucky to be accepted into the uh, medical scientist training program after that, uh, which allows you to, to do a PhD in concurrence with uh, an MD. Uh, you may know UCLA had some great immunologists as well. Uh, turns out Mitch Cronenberg uh, was uh, was on my thesis committee, but uh, it, I'll just say, like it, at that stage in history, the late 1980s, the immunology experiments were really of two types. One, they were really arcane genetic experiments, and the other, they were these in vitro experiments. They were sort of mi- mixing things and adding factors and watching. So, so this, to me, it just doesn't seem it seemed very phenomenological and not very mechanistic. So there was no mouse knockouts, for example, at the time, no CRISPR, no GFP to track cells. So you really didn't know what was going on. So about this time in history, I learned about the history of developmental biology, model organisms. And really the cool thing there is you could uh, prospectively identify genes and, and ultimately whole pathways. And then the assumption for in relation to medical scientist training is that, you know, these same pathways that would be, first of all, conserved in evolution, which was no guarantee at that point. And then they would be active in development and then somehow co-opted in disease, human disease in particular, if they were indeed conserved. So there were a lot of assumptions around studying developmental biology at that time in history with the, with the hope that it would apply to medicine. So then you could, but then what you learned in the model organism, you, you could apply that learning potentially to the, to the higher organism, the mouse model of the human, and then you could 
you know, actually have a better mechanistic understanding of disease. So plus, plus the kind of results that were generated in developmental biology, uh, you know, where you clone a gene for the first time, you know, nobody's ever seen it in history. These are powerful results and, and they last a thousand years, right? They're not going to be upturned uh, in a few weeks by another flashy finding. So I, I felt studying developmental biology was really a worthwhile foundation to understand the mechanistic and molecular basis of disease. Uh, so my PhD went really well. Timing was was everything. It worked incredibly hard. I ended up discovering a DNA binding site used uh, in the fruit fly uh, for the uh, a transcription factor called single-minded. So single-minded, I just felt from the mutant phenotype, was super interesting because it sits at the top of a hierarchy specifying an entire lineage of cells. And these cells are called the midline cells. But ultimately, and I, you, know, you didn't, didn't know this going into it, but the work really had implications far beyond that, including... Uh, understanding say, circadian rhythms, uh, detoxification, and ultimately oxygen sensing. Uh, and, and the latter reference is is the fact that the first citation of my um, the major result of my uh, dissertation work uh, was published in 1994. Uh, the first citation of that paper in development was cited by uh, Greg Semenza, who uh, went on to win the Nobel Prize for his work identifying. Uh, hypoxia-inducible factors. So that link of my work to uh, these other broad areas of biology really gave me a huge amount of confidence and really made me proud of the work uh, that I had done. Yeah, I can understand that, having having your work cited by someone who wins a Nobel Prize. That's uh, not a lot of people can say that, I think. I, I, more than you would think, but because we all stand on the shoulders of giants, but um, but still, yeah. it's it's nice to see a field get recognition through a mechanism like the Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. So you're doing all this work in de- developmental biology and, and molecular biology, and so I, I feel like that's that is you know at least especially these days that is sort of connected to pathology. Is that kind of what led you into the specialty of pathology or, or, or was it something else? I think the common feature is probably the, the microscope, but certainly being exposed to pathologist help. So with, with Dr. Marcus, uh, the cardiologist working before med school, we would try to modify the heart rhythm in, in actually a dog with radiofrequency ablation. It's a technique commonly used today to modify heart rhythms. But we had to perform necropsies to, to remove the heart, look at the pathology, make sure that what we were doing was otherwise safe. And so I worked with a pathologist, uh, Dr. Anna Graham, uh, who was a pathologist at the University of Arizona. And, and really just the opportunity to look at the microscope, uh, the tissue under the microscope with her really opened up a whole new world. It's incredibly rewarding. And, and, and I seem to have the patience for it. And then, the, you know, the PhD, I really used a lot of microscopy in the PhD in staining, and it showed me the power of using microscopy in tissue to visualize mechanisms. So after my clinical rotations in med school, I, I, I kind of felt that choosing pathology would let me kind of have my cake and eat it too, in the sense that I wanted to pursue some level of investigation while being actively involved in, in the medical uh, care enterprise. So I, I felt like it was a way I could be useful. So I did, uh, went on to do anatomic pathology at Stanford and then a fellowship in autopsy, hospital autopsy pathology, and then was a junior clinical faculty uh, during my postdoc. So then about, uh, about the postdoc, it, it just if I could share that brief story with you, I'd originally planned to do a postdoc at uh, the Fred Hutchison Cancer Center with Hal Weintraub. Uh, his lab had discovered a gene called MyoD. This, is, this was the first protein uh, that was, when it was discovered, it was shown to, when misexpressed, it could, could, could completely switch one cell phenotype into another cell phenotype. So in this case, a fibroblast into a muscle cell. 
So, uh, and then, and I mentioned Sim was actually single-minded was one of these proteins. So I felt like going to his lab would be the best way to really try to make progress in this field of understanding how the, the various hundreds of cell fates uh, in the human body were determined. So sadly, he passed away due to a brain tumor in 1995. So I was kind of looking around at other places to to work and actually met Matthew Scott uh, at Stanford and was fortunate to get a position in, in his lab. Matt, uh, you may know, was one of the original discoverers of what's called the homeobox. This is a conserved DNA binding domain present in homeotic gene clusters in, in all animals, as far as we can tell. But they're also uh, ancestrally related to bacterial helix turn helix domain. So this is an ancient mechanism by which proteins interact with DNA that's been co-opted to basically organize the body axis. This is a totally fascinating and still you know, somewhat mysterious aspect of, uh, of hierarchy control systems in, in human development and disease. So it seemed like, it, and so at that point, um, Matt uh, had a fairly large lab, was working on uh, fruit flies, but also on, on mice. Uh, I was actually in the lab when the, the lab uh, was part of a discovery of uh, learning that the uh, patched homologue uh, in, in Drosophila, is a segmentation mutant, uh, the homologue in humans was the, uh, the causative gene for Gorlin syndrome. This is a cancer predisposition syndrome pr- predominantly characterized by basal cell uh, carcinoma. So um, that, that disease link that a developmental biology lab was having to medicine was really uh, exciting to me. And so I actually worked on a gene called NAKED in Matt's lab, and we found it regulates Wnt signaling in a way that's quite similar to the way Patched regulates hedgehogs. So I worked on that for uh, several years and then eventually worked on that as a faculty for many, many years. Yeah, this is so the kind of the mid to late 90s when all of that stuff was really sort of sort of exploding. Yes. All the work with the different genes, that must have been really exciting. It was a credit, an incredibly exciting time in, in history. It was very profound as well to, to see these genes be discovered and the look at their evolutionary tree and see that they were, you know, let's say present in yeast or they showed up in sponges or maybe they just are specific to animals or insects. Yeah. Incredibly exciting. It's really retelling the whole story of, of animal and and the evolution of life on earth. When you look at the uh, history of these genes and what they do in various organisms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yep. Now, then after a while you made a, uh, to moved into industry from, from clinical work. And yes. Yes. So, so what was there like a particular kind of technological development or, or something else that made you realize it was it was time to make that move? No, that that's a good question. And when I when I talk about this in front of groups, I picture a, you know, a railroad track going into a very dark tunnel. Right. You know that the you know, the track goes through the tunnel and comes out the other side, but you, you don't know what the journey's like. So that's a bit what uh, going into, I would say, a junior faculty job is like really anywhere. You don't really know how it's going to turn out uh, okay. or how, how I'll just say Mother Nature has uh, has set up the systems for you to discover. So I was a junior faculty at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. I was really lucky to be able to focus almost all my time on on research and building a research career. So I did have uh, didn't have to do clinical work uh, starting out, but I worked very hard in the lab. Uh, you know, as hard as a postdoc and did some teaching in, in the graduate school and the medical school. Uh, in my almost decade there, I published 10 papers, multiple reviews, but at the end, I, you know, I really felt like I answered all the questions I was interested in. The next questions, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, were 
uh, were very hard to answer. Uh, you know, I do like difficult things, but I really just don't like impossible things. And at this point, it, it just felt impossible. So move to industry uh, for me was was inevitable. Um, like many scientists in academia, I, I had to spend a lot of time, uh, I'd say way too much time writing grants, uh, you know, ultimately on my own topic. And to write these grants compellingly, I think ultimately for many of them, you have to you have to make up, you have to contrive some importance to human health that, that may just not be there, right? Or, or may just be, may, may just not show up. So that that's kind of what happened to, with this project. It, you know, in contrast to industry, at least from the pe- people I knew at industry, appeared that like everything that was being worked on by definition had relevance to human health. Obviously, if it weren't, you know, the company wouldn't be funding it. So so just to back up a little bit, a major reason I studied flaws um, was the assumption and, and hope that humans' versions of the genes I was studying, if they existed, would be major regulators of the same pathway in humans or human disease. So WINT, as we know, the WINT pathway, WINT beta-catenin and non-canonical pathways are incredibly important in a variety of human diseases, uh, cancer, birth defects, um, uh, and, and, and almost every tissue. But we did show, I did show the, through the, the work uh, cloning out the mouse naked genes and making single and double knockouts that they just weren't essential for, for mammalian development, at least in mice. And that the next set of experiments probably would have been, you know, very heavy in behavior and just would have been hard and hard to get funding for. So that reinforced my interest in switching to industry. So it was really my own experience that prompted the switch then. Uh, any kind of, you know, innate desire from from the start. I, it, you know, doing basic science is an incredible privilege. And I felt like if I early on had given up that opportunity, I, I would have had regrets. And I, I don't want to have regrets at the end of, of, of my life. But it was, you, you mentioned, uh, Dennis, you know, what happened during that time in history. In the 20 years since the time, for example, I worked at the NIH to the time that I started industry, right, the human genome was completed and and really, I think the first uses of it for human health were, were coming on board. So it was an incredibly exciting time uh, to make a move. I feel like, you know, it, it's important for pathologists to get involved in in industry like this, like like you've done, because yeah. a lot of that applies to especially molecular pathology. So how important yeah. do you think it is for pathologists to be involved? Wow, incredibly. And not just involved, but in a very specific way. Uh, and okay. it's an interesting question because you probably know, um, at least, you know, for all the pathologists in quotes that I know, it's really not sufficient to describe them as people, although it's a convenient way to, to describe what you do, especially at a party, right? Um, it's, you know, they, they differ by interests, employment, and, and personality, frankly. Um, yeah. and, and interests mean, you know, the field, like whether they're disease or technology focused. So I've always felt myself basically how I described to you more interested in the biology than the technology. Uh, and, and of course, the latter is really critical to understand the former, but I, I just felt like I, I didn't want to be the one who, I'd rather be the one who used the technology to see something new and discover it than actually build the technology uh, if I had to make a choice. Uh, but as, as you probably know, there are great pathologists who are also great tool makers. Uh, that that must, mostly wasn't for me because I felt I knew that others were better at it. And, and I think ultimately I didn't have the, the patience for it that some people do. I guess regarding employment in, in industry, I, I would say that there, you know, we, we call industry one big thing, but it's actually very, um, you know, multi-pronged. There are different types of industry, the different goals, pharma versus diagnostics, academic versus private practice is called industry. And of course, different specialties have different roles. 
uh, in, in industry. You know, I do think that in, in order for to, to, to really to really justify your choice, justify your time on earth as a physician, as a pathologist, like you, you can't just view it as as a job, right? It, it, it's got to be somewhat of a calling and a passion. I think I've said for me that part of that calling was the, the commonality was working in the microscope and looking at tissues and, and thinking of them. But let's face it, like any field of medicine is just too hard not to at least partially be uh, you know, incredibly passionate at it to, to make it a lifelong uh, activity. Really about pathologists, how they participate in industry and perhaps in the design of products they use. And I'll, I'll cite the example of the uh, Apollo space program. So recall the, um, you know, there were the engineers on the Apollo program designed a capsule with no windows, right? Because the astronauts really, they were trained as pilots, but they didn't really need to steer the spaceship. And if they tried to, they wouldn't know how to deal with zero gravity uh, you know, situations. So the guidance mm-hmm. systems actually, even though they were crude, they did almost everything. Uh, but as, as I said, um, because they were trained as pilots, they wanted to see what where the ship was going and get a make a mental picture of their trajectory in their brains. And so they, uh, you know, they forced the engineers to make windows in, in 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 the crafts, and then actually gave them some control over the control system to override, which actually turned out to be critical on some of the missions. So I think it raises the point that if you're designing a product, you really need to involve the user. And, and the, I think the best example here is, is digital pathology uh, with, with the reference to the so-called pathologist cockpit. Uh, oh, yeah. These, these cockpits that are coming along that are going to be, you know, in some ways like the, the pilot piloting the plane where they have all the information in front of them, uh, you know, needed to uh, to fly the plane or to sign out the case. So. So, so I think, you know, if you don't design, if you don't involve pathologists in this process of actually designing this cockpit, like you're just, nobody's going to use it. Nobody's going to want to fly. I, I do think industry is getting better at this, uh, but I think there are really still gaps in part because pathologists aren't, aren't really viewed as a key part of the team, uh, the design team, the product team uh, from the beginning. That's actually a really good point. Like I remember some of the early, like, you know, lab uh, information systems and things like that that were really hard to use and they didn't yeah. have the you know ready, readily available information that you needed for right. every case because right. they were they were not designed with a pathologist you know involved right and right those things have gotten better too well and i think our at least in the u.s this experiment has somewhat been done on primary care physicians and other physicians who use electronic medical records right these were not designed to enhance care they were designed to 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 book and bill, right. To, to track information yeah. and, to, and to bill for it. So, uh, you know, this has been cited as a major contributor to, uh, increased workload and, and physician burnout. So I don't think digital pathologies is kind of a, a different field. We'll get onto it in a bit, but like, I, I don't think we want to go down that road with pathologists and have the first systems out there ones that they just do not like to use and contribute to burnout. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. All right. I, I want to talk a little about a book that you, you were one of the authors of. Uh-huh. It, it was called Molecular Histopathology and Tissue Biomarkers in Drug and Diagnostic Development, which I think was in 2016. It, I, yeah, we worked on it for about three years, but yeah, it got out to 2015, 2016. Uh-huh. Okay. So what was the goal of this book? Yeah, sure. I, I think the title almost sums it up, and that's why I picked the title. Uh, uh, but at that time when I was brought in, it wasn't titled 
It was started through uh, the CRO lab that pioneered pathology image analysis, flagship biosciences. Uh, their founding CEO, Steve Potts, was the founding editor. I got to know him through my uh, initial work uh, at, at Biogen through my manager, Bob Dunstan, who was also kind of a, an evangelist of digital pathology. And then Dave Eberhardt, uh, ex-Genentech uh, uh, pathologist, who was then at Chapel Hill, was brought in, and, but he had also worked in the industry. So it started out really as a means to aggregate inter- scholarly material around quantifying pathology with image analysis. And so that was a, a good goal. And, and Steve was actually a, a, kind of one of the leaders in thinking about regulatory issues uh, involved with bringing digital pathology to diagnostics. Uh, so I was able to add some, in, I, I, you know, I come, it was kind of brought in and it was I looked at what they had so far. And I, I really felt like some basic information about uh, biomarkers would be useful. Uh, how pathology supports drug and diagnostic development, which, which frankly, I hadn't seen almost anything written about. And then a bit about next generation sequencing. So I, we added those chapters as well. So I really, as with any book, the person who most often benefits is the one who, who writes it. So, you know, this is not on the New York Times bestseller list, but it was a tremendous learning and network opportunity for, for me to contribute to this, to this book. Uh, many of the topics and how they were written were very future oriented and I think are still applicable today. Related to pathology, but it was way before, I'll just say way before the explosion of the artificial intelligence applications, particularly on H&E stain slides in the last uh, five or so years. But I will say when I joined industry, it was 10 years, over 10 years ago, it was very difficult to get and to see analyzed, you know, tissue biopsies from patients in clinical trials. And one of my roles at uh, actually Novartis was to, to handle those biomarker assessments through tissue collection plans and pathology plans. But I will say in the, in the 10 years since then up to today, it's actually, it's more common in an early stage oncology trials to, to have biopsies than not, which I think is a tremendous advance in the field, especially in the area of immuno-oncology where the tissue context of the tumor is increasingly uh, acknowledged as important for predicting uh, response to drugs, understanding drug response. Uh, but you know, surprisingly, t- even today, uh, sadly, none of these observations are used diagnostically, and only rarely are they used as selection criteria in, in clinical trials. So stay tuned. There may be a second edition of this book sometime in the future, um, but, but none is planned yet. Okay. Okay. That's interesting that like you were just saying, a lot of the topics you covered in the book are things that are fairly common these days. And it seems like, especially like getting pathology involved in drug development and clinical trials, like I feel like that's going to continue to grow. So that's interesting that you were talking about that, what, seven, eight years ago already. I I hope it does. And one of the points I I make in this book is I I think the, the chapter about biomarkers really goes into the different classes of biomarkers. Of course, nowadays, Digital biomarkers are a big thing, right? Collecting mm-hmm. activity yeah. data or real-time monitoring of glucose. I mean, these are incredibly important measurements because you can get uh, so many of them. But for, for some diseases, and I'll just say diseases like cancer and autoimmune disease, and this may sound pithy, but uh, you know, tissue is the issue. The lesion is where the action is happening. And so to assume that you're going to be able to discern everything critical about the lesion, let's say it's the tumor mass, from a blood test or from an imaging study or, you know, from something else like, you know, the color of your earlobes, right? <laughs> I think is, is, is uh, fanciful, right? The, the, the answer is to be found in the lesion. 
right? This is a central concept in pathology that I think a lot of folks outside of pathology don't get. The lesion is where the action is, and the tissue biopsy allows you to interrogate it in in ways that are increasingly powerful and are going to be increased. And ultimately, I believe will be the only way to make progress. So I, I do believe that the use of these biopsies in clinical trials, uh, frankly, if if you're not doing it, you're 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 not you're you're not doing the best thing for patients and for humanity. So it seems like these days a lot of your work is involves a multiplex technology. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, which is which is a uh, kind of an exciting field now particularly I know you're working with multiplex immunofluorescence. Yes. So a couple of questions about this. Do you think uh, IF has a greater potential than immunohistochemistry when it comes to multiplex staining? And then I want to get into kind of how IF has kind of changed recently with the advancements in digital and computational pathology as far as like the the uh, equipment aspect of it yeah I, thank you i could i could touch on that um okay. I, I would say it I kind of in line with what i said before i haven't used multiplex because i'm particularly fascinated with the technology of multiplex but really to answer to help answer questions and in my most recent role at ultaview where we used a lot of technology of uh, multiplex technology uh, you know, to answer other folks' questions. But but I will say that by, you know, by studying developmental biology, you often needed to discern whether, for example, protein A and B were in the same or different cell types, or, you know, pathway C was active in cell type A. And so you'd have to do a multiplex, maybe a simple one, just, just to answer your question. So I did a lot of uh, multiplex type experiments as, as a faculty and mostly in confocal to answer those types of questions. And then as a faculty, I ran a small microscopy score. So I got to help core rather. I got to help a lot of people uh, get their experiments to work. And they were often multiplex with some morphological context required. So then in pharma, I, I was fortunate. Uh, I mentioned, you know, I got to do pathology the whole time. So in pharma, we actually, Biogen was a very technically savvy company and there were a lot of really great scientists there. And so we, we use multiplex all the time, mostly for immunology and neurology. But then, as, as I mentioned, with, uh, with in the group I was in, translational pathology, we learned the power of automation and digital pathology, you know, which really allowed you to, to scale up you know, by several orders of magnitude almost the amount of tissue you could look at and the amount of data you would get from tissues. Uh, so you get quantitative data, it would be statistically robust, and, and it would make the results more potentially more reproducible. So then, I, again, going, kind of going through my history, I, I work for Leica Biosystems, which is part of Danaher, uh, and they support uh, their life sciences group and, and their discovery tools support, um, life sciences tools support all kinds of multiplex applications, mostly uh, for use on their immunostainer platform. So I worked a lot with digital pathology systems and multiplex efforts uh, in that role. So then after that, I mentioned I joined UltaView, which is a Cambridge-based uh, biotech startup that had developed a DNA barcode-based multiplex immunofluorescence technology that has several advantages for panel construction and immuno-oncology research applications, particularly the speed at which you could achieve a certain scale of results. So once again, we supported uh, prospective clinical trials with research endpoints. We did res- retrospective cohorts and, and uh, image analysis of, of tissue biopsies. So a lot of great experience just uh, working kind of hand by hand with pharma, uh, biopharma clients and customers to answer their questions, mostly in drug development. One of the key attributes of UltaView system, and now several others I think have demonstrated this in one way or another, 
is to precisely be able to merge the immunofluorescence data stack with the H&E slide uh, that, as you know, serves as a basis of pathology diagnosis. So, um, you know, the data, this data stack is, is unlike what any human has ever seen, right? Or, or certainly pathologists don't process this. Yet, uh, it, it, if you think about it, if, if the goal is to make in the future a uh, artificial intelligence-based H&E reader, then this type of method where you precisely stack annotation uh, labels on top of the H&E could be a very fast way to uh, label thousands of cells with it at one time. And, that, and those labels could be used as a basis of training uh, the H&E. So that, that's kind of the future. It's a bit, uh, you know, dreamy <laughs> in nature, uh, imagine, imagination-based. Uh, but the question about immunofluorescence versus IHC really depends on the application. As you know, pathologists love right-field immunohistochemistry, but generally don't like immunofluorescence because they don't necessarily like to uh, you know, look at a dark background. They don't see the tissue context, and they're, they're just not fast for them. And the way I like to say it, I like to show these images as if they're hanging in a museum, right? They're beautiful, striking images. They're often used as marketing material. They, you know, they tickle the visual cortex, uh, but they're, they're not practically useful as part of uh, pathology practice because uh, they're very difficult to interpret without computational and visual aids. Okay. So I, I do think that, uh, but I think once, and as you may know, there's there's more techniques now that are creating artificial stains or, or generating tissue-based data based on chips or other features that can be overlaid on on tissue. So I think I think the bottom line is going to be trust from where the data comes from and ultimately it, annotation or overlaying on an H&E section. So I, I do think specifically regarding immunofluorescence, which you asked about, I think if the, the you know the dark field data could be transformed to a, 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 a you know inverted basically on the color scale and visualized in a bright field format with an H and E slide, and so I don't think the pathologists would care where the data came from as long as they, uh, as I said, they could trust it. And I think more and more of the mod- modalities that uh, label tissues and cells are, are, if they're not pleasurable to look at or obvious to interpret, then they could be kind of digitally transform into a bright field format that, that the pathologist is comfortable looking at. Uh, there is one limitation of IHC, which is to me is kind of the elephant in the room, right? T- to this date, there just aren't many uh, IHC applications that allow uh, easy detection of two or more markers in the same cell. There are some, but um, mm. they're not widely used. Uh, but really based on all, all the data coming from uh, the human cell atlas, single cell sequencing, uh, single cell transcript, transcriptomics and proteomics. I, what we're seeing is that to identify uniquely pathogenic cell types, uh, subtype, subsets of macrophages, subsets of uh, myeloid cells, etc., you, you can't just do it with a single marker. It, you, you need a combination, a limited combination of markers, typically between three and six, to identify particular cell types. And that is a task that is, in essence, impossible with conventional IHCs for diagnostic purposes today. So I, I, I don't think that, you know, digital and computational pathology will make the data just more accessible. I think it's absolutely critical to make it even possible to use and interpret. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it has to be easy to use uh, in, in order for it to kind of uh, catch on more widely. That makes sense. That makes sense. 
This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Keith Wharton. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhurov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Keith Wharton on the People of Pathology podcast. Uh, all right, let's get a little bit more into kind of the, the uh, digital pathology world yeah. as, yep. as far as like whole slide imaging. I, I read a paper that you wrote and you were talking about the pixel pathway, mm-hmm. which was actually the first time I'd ever heard of that. So can you tell mm-hmm. me what, what is the pixel pathway? What does that mean? Interesting. Yeah, good good history to that. I probably know 80 to 90% of it, so I'll, I'll do my best. Um, okay. Uh, but sure. So this was, in essence, devised in, in FDA guidance documents to describe a whole slide imaging system to, to track the information through the whole slide imaging system from from literally the slide through you know the scanner through the software to the viewing monitor so it's basically a way to track information through a system as part of the description of the system that the fda asks of, of any medical device so this i'd say this had advantages and disadvantages in the digital pathology field that'll become clear i, I think in a moment at least from in my opinion so first of all it allowed you to define the internal functions of the system to track the information this is really important for defining failure modes of any system. So when the information doesn't get through, is it a problem with the scanner? Is the software, you know, transforming the data, or is it not being displayed correctly? So just you know, it's, it's simple, but it, it's, it helps you describe failure modes. And then the FDA really wanted these systems tested compared to gold standard reference method, which is manual microscopy. So it was it was able we, we was able to do, and, and there have been three examples of this to date allowed uh, manufacturers of these systems to show that using these systems in the context of diagnostic practice for so-called primary diagnosis, they were equivalent or they were non-inferior. So I was part of one of the studies that did that. Uh, as I said, to date, there've been three uh, that led to a 510K clearance. And, and interestingly, the results from all these studies are pretty similar. It, it, basically that there's less than a 1% difference in the consequences of, of diagnoses when you look at thousands of cases when you use uh, when pathologists use digital pathology as opposed to, to manual microscopy. So this, as a an aggregate of data now accumulating, gives I think pathologists more confidence that these systems are uh, you know are are, are not going to hurt people. Right, they're as accurate as their trusted microscope. So what's the problem? So today each of the three cleared systems you know, has a similar design, but they're fundamentally different. They're generally, the parts can't be swapped out. This is a, a longer uh, prob- discussion of a problem that's been true of pathology for decades now, digital pathology, the, la- the so-called lack of interoperability and interconvertibility. 
Uh, and if you think about it, like if you go to a patholo- party with pathologists and ask them about the pixel pathway, right? They're going to look at you like you have three heads. They, they don't care about <laughs> the pixel <laughs> pathway. They, they care yeah. about the, sis- the features of the system that need, they need to have uh, comfort and, and confidence in making a diagnosis as part of their practice of medicine, right? Which on a fine scale is, we know, is not regulated by the FDA. It's regulated by state medical boards and uh, American boards and things like this. And, and as you know, FDA doesn't regulate microscopes or pathologists use for diagnostic use. So, so there's, 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 prob- there's some problems with the concept uh, in, in relation to the issue in pathology, issues in pathology that have to be overcome to make the components of these systems mix and match. And so now, as I mentioned, uh, to date, there, well, we haven't talked about this at all, but uh, to, to date, there have just been a very small handful of artificial intelligence applications in histopathology cleared by the FDA or approved by the FDA. And, and they're more in the hopper, and some of them have, have gained some clearances worldwide. Uh, but there's, there's this huge, and, huge explosion and, and really a large hope around using AI to help uh, pathologists make more accurate, more consistent diagnoses. So this is incredibly exciting, right? I'm sure you've had other folks that have talked about this on, on your podcast. Uh, at the same yeah. time, there's now an explosion of single cell biology and spatial multiomics. And I hinted about the, the readouts of this that are going to feed into uh, influencing future diagnostics. So it, you know, to, to, to reiterate, right, you can provide really deep level cell level, annota- deep cell level annotations to every cell in a tissue image. So ten, tens to hundreds of thousands of cells annotated all at once, much more accurately than a pathologist and much more quickly. And then what's the significance here, right? What we're finding is that tumor microenvironment is incredibly complex. It plays a large role in whether immune checkpoint therapies work. And there are different cell types that are basically either helpers or or herders, different subtypes of macrophages, lymphocytes, different stages of exhaustion. There's different uh, functions of dendritic cells. And none of the markers we use in routine diagnostics really interrogate these cell, uh, cell phenotypes. So I think the future is really somehow using digital pathology to merge this H&E data with the spatial multi-omic data. So it's it, at first visualizable by the pathologist and then in a downstream sense allows you to identify the uh, drivers in disease and then the vulnerabilities to therapy that help you pick combo therapies. So, to, you know, today pathologists do merge data, right? They do H&E, they do maybe some IHCs and then they get maybe an NGS report or a PCR report. So their job is to take all this data and kind of manually cobble it together. Uh, mm-hmm. But right to do this with spatial multiomic data, it's, it's impossible without digital pathology and computational uh, pathology. And whole site imaging is really the foundation of this. So, so this is some of the basis of excitement around uh, the adoption of digital pathology. Uh, you, you know, I don't want to go for too far in the future, but you know, pathologists are used to using their iPhones or their smartphones with applications. So why shouldn't pathology really be the same way. Uh, back to the pixel pathway. Uh, it, you know, so right now, every, every lab, every company, maybe, you know, different research groups, consortia, uh, are, you know, they're developing or healthcare system. They're developing these digital pathology systems, but they're very, very fit for purpose. Uh, you could say they each has their own pixel pathway. Uh, but I do think that, um, it'll be impossible in the future to have a shared pixel pathway among all these devices, unless we fundamentally change how these devices are designed and specified. 
so in this article you refer to, thanks for, for reading it. I appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, as I said, I, I don't think pathologists really care about pixel pathways, right? They care about usability, trust, uh, efficiency, confidence. Uh, given that generally pathologists' goal is to identify cell types and tissue patterns, right? That's what we learn in anatomic pathology, surgical pathology. So why standardize on pixels? I, I think, actually, I think the field of flow cytometry is, is ahead of us here, right? Uh, I think the field needs to work towards standardizing the definitions of these various uh, cell types uh, that are pathogenic and non-pathogenic and how we identify them. And then how can they be identified by different modalities, right? Can you see the same cell subtype by doing, for example, looking at a, a protein multiplex versus an RNA multiplex? Or is there another type of modality that looks at... Um, you know, microRNAs or link RNAs or other emerging markers and combinations that let you, you know, confidently identify these cell types. And I think there's no, I don't see any work out there being done in that direction yet. So I think that's a huge frontier. And that's almost consortium uh, level problem, right? Because it, it may be the type of thing where unless a bunch of entities, healthcare systems, industry, maybe some foundations agree on what the problem is that they will all put their hands together and decide the, the best way to solve it. Uh, mm. and maybe there's some parallels with, you know, where NGS stands today, right? At the beginning, there were different platforms, different methods, but now there is some convergence around the interpretation of pathogenic alleles, uh, variants of unknown significance, and, and, and just polymorphisms. And, and maybe if I could just um, add one more point, if you, if you think about like why, the landscape is as I described it. it and I'd welcome if you think differently. Uh, the current incentives for academic labs who publish research is to publish novelty, right? You, you're more likely to get a highly cited paper uh, if it if it's novel, and, and the incentives are all around novelty. Uh, in, you know, in the biotech and pharma world, it's all about exclusivity, right? It's like we can do this better than you, and and so we think we're better than you. Uh, not, not neither of these incentive alignments in these in these settings either academics or industry i think are geared are set up to standardize uh, these cell phenotype definitions that i'm talking about so i think as i said there'll need to be a fundamental shift in the incentives and before this really happens yeah i guess i never thought about it that way like the whole system is set up to not be standardized uh, in, in a way so, yeah, like you're saying, we'd have to completely change well, it's, all of it. it. I mean, yes, if you think about, let's say, think about uh, testing for biomarkers, and I think we may get into this in the next part of the interview. Testing of some biomarkers uh, has become standardized because there are different offerings, and, and the goal for labs is to have those biomarkers be tested in a consistent fashion. So organizations like CAP have played a really critical role in, in, in the standardization, again, over over decades. So yeah, uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll, I think we'll get on to that in the next question. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. Let, let's keep going with that because, as, as we know, and we talked about a little bit earlier, also, you know, pathology data is being used. The, the biomarkers being used for drug development, things like yes. companion diagnostics. Yes. Where do Where do you think this is going to go in the future? I, I'm optimistic for the future. First of all, yeah. Thanks for those questions. I'm I'm really excited about companion diagnostics. I've worked on them um, in the past, and in my current role, I'm. Um, I'm starting to work with those as well. It's not so recent. You know, I think there have been companion diagnostics used, for example, in breast cancer for detection of uh, ERPR and HER2 for 
two, you know, over two decades. And in many ways, as you know, HER2 has been a prototype of, of, of companion di- tissue-based companion diagnostic development, a very valuable one. Yes. So HER2, as you know, is a gene also called ERB2 that's massively, massively overexpressed in a subset of breast cancers. And selection of patients likely to respond to at least the first generations of HER2-targeted therapies was through uh, an IHC test to detect really massively amount, high amounts of the HER2 proteins on, on tumor cells. So HER2 is a transformative paradigm for cancer research and, and therapy development. After it, and I, as I mentioned from my timeline, I entered pharma at the time when, when HER2 testing was very firmly established in, uh, in the treatment paradigm. Uh, after it entered clinical practice, though, the researchers in biopharma and cancer biologists thought, because the genome had just really been cloned, there were, there were still going to be hundreds of more HER2s to be discovered. What I mean is that they would be, you know, some gene that's massively overamplified in a subset of cancers, and it would be easily targeted by a drug, and then, you know, the patients would easily be detected with some sort of a tissue test. Uh, an interesting, you know, that was mostly not the case. HER2 is not the only protein that's amplified in, in, in the universe of cancer, but it's a major one, particularly in breast cancer. But there are other ways that genes can cause cancer, right? Include, including translocations, mutations, and now uh, lots of epigenetic changes are being uh, described. And, and some of these are actually easier to detect without tissue staining, at least the, with the methods we have today. So, and we now, as you know, in, particularly in the kinase space, we have lots of therapies that are mutation selective. Uh, they only work really when the tumor is driven by a specifically altered form of the gene like uh, BRAF or KRAS. And in fact, now the opposite is also true because it, we're getting better at this class of drugs called antibody drug conjugates, where you, you don't necessarily need a massively amplified target to, uh, for, for, the, for the target to be useful. So now we have in, in our space this uh, HER2-low category, and there's a new drug that's, that's gotten a lot of excitement called trastuzumab deruxtecan, which is a ADC based on the original uh, HER2-targeting drug. And this seems to work on uh, lots of tumors with lower levels of, of HER2 expression, at least at some frequency. This is really an optimistic uh, development for, for the breast cancer patients worldwide. So for the future, I think the, the following apply. You know, every, every target's different, both in terms of how it sustains growth of the cancer and, you know, how it might be best, best targeted with the therapy. And then how patients are identified that are likely to benefit or, or not from uh, that targeting modality. How you best identify those patients varies with the type of lesions. Uh, although, let's face it, like I'm a pathologist, pathologists are probably get more pleasure from looking at a tissue stain than they do, you know, an NGS panel read, just because they like mm-hmm. to look at tissue. But sure. what we're seeing now in the future, right, is for most cancers, even of a given type, there's often a very unique specific patient-specific combination of genes and proteins in a particular patient that's driving the disease. So it's not good enough, obviously, to just say that all breast cancers are, you know, should be given this or that drug. Uh, even within, for example, HER2-positive cancers, there may be some that are super responders and some that are relatively resistant. So to realize this concept of personalized medicine, I think you'll, you'll need to identify the unique combination of drivers and, and, and have medicines kind of on the shelf ready to target them and, and save for or somewhat proven combinations. So to some extent, this is already being done with NGS panels uh, to identify therapies that work in, in parallel by looking at lots of you know, gene muta- genes at once, mostly mutations and lesions. Uh, but the NGS panels today, you know, they don't look at 
mostly don't look at transcripts and they, they completely miss tissue contact. So there has to be this step at the end where you integrate two incomplete sets of data. But, you know, to target all of these different cell types uh, in the tumor microenvironment that, that are driving tumor growth and blocking all these drugs from working, you'll, you'll need tissue contacts. I think you'll need, be able to need, need to be able to see where those cells are in the relation to the tumor and their functional state. So I don't think that's possible to achieve optimistically with techniques that destroy tissue. So in this future scenario, uh, again, I'm holding up my um, crystal ball. I think you'll need pathology, but you will need some multiplex technologies to to identify these cell types. And then you'll need a pathologist uh, to read it with an assistance program that includes uh, digital pathology. Um, so you mentioned companion diagnostics, right? For tissue two, there's a remarkably small number of these out there today. There's more in development, but they're they're still very risky. So for tissue, there's HER2, PDL1 is commonly done. There's only a few more. And and there are actually a, an explosion now of companion diagnostics that don't use tissue, right? They're in, in various NGS panels uh, in terms of FDA clearances. Right. Uh, so all the IHC is almost all one marker at a time, you know, done with IHC in a single color. And because of that, they're not great for quantitation and, and you only really get enrichment for a response to a drug. And this is true for pdl one where even under the best circumstances, you know, the, the minority of patients in a selected cohort actually uh, uh, respond or are cured. So, so these tests still don't give very high confidence that they predict response. They enrich for likelihood of response. Uh, so to answer your last question, yeah, I think pathology will play a much greater role in drug development and patient selection uh, in the future. But I do believe the capability to detect multiple markers in tissue in a tissue context in particular will be required to make these diagnostics and their combos uh, far better predictors of response, especially novel combos of the future. Since November of last year of 2022, uh, you've been global medical affairs leader in pathology at Roche. And, and so I want to talk about this. Like, how did this opportunity come up for you? And then if you can tell me a little bit, uh, probably you probably can't say too much, but a little bit about what kind of projects you're involved with at Roche. Sure. No, happy to. Um, okay. Happy to share that. I'm really excited to have joined Roche recently. I've, I'll just say I've admired the company from afar for decades. I'll tell you why. Uh, in a okay. minute, but as part of the global medical affairs team, I'm a part of just over a dozen people who cover uh, medical affairs functions for all of our platforms, uh, including tissue, lab measurement, sequencing, and uh, point of care. I, I focus on tissue pathology in part because that's my interest and expertise. Um, and you may know medical affairs is, is I call it a nodal function in, in that it sense, in the sense that it often acts as a bridge between activities within the company and things that are going on in the, out, in the outside world, including supporting customers, understanding the thinking of key opinion leaders, uh, evaluating evidence, and in our case, uh, supporting affiliate or regional medical directors that cover territories across the globe. Uh, so you, you probably know that, you know, if you just talk to a random physician who enters industry, typically pharma, they'll do one of three jobs. They'll do medical affairs, uh, clinical development, which is running trials or, or drug safety. There are other jobs that uh, physicians do, but most of them outside of pathology uh, fall into one of these categories, typically. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the career pathways for pathologists in industry, typically pharma, I found are not so well uh, defined, as mentioned before. 
Uh, pathology is often viewed as a service that's outsourced rather than a leadership role. Uh, so the number of pathologists in the industry, at least when I joined almost 15 years ago, is fairly small, and you tend to know everybody, which which is nice. It's comforting. And when I've looked at jobs that take me away from pathology to do other types of things, I've been fortunate, I, I think, to basically do pathology the entire time. Roche, in particular, is an organization is one of the few larger ones, I would say, that's viewed pathologists as critical members of the team uh, from the start to make new drugs and diagnostics. So I've admired the organization from afar for quite a while. The main organization within Roche I support is called Ventana Medical Systems, which I presume many of your listeners have heard of, uh, which also became part of Roche, I believe, in 2008. Uh, Ventana was started by Tom Grogan, a pathologist at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And actually, he was there as a, as a professor when I started med school there in 1986. Uh, you, you may know he, he recently, well, before the pandemic, wrote an autobiography about his life. But uh, I, I really found it a fascinating read because it, it focused on, on how Ventana grew and how stressful that was and how challenging it was. Uh, and part of the title is called Chasing the Invisible, which, you know, in essence is what immunohistochemical staining does to tissue. I, I really highly recommend this book. He has, he has an amazing story. Uh, and if you just look at his contributions over the last 40 years, it's, it's really transformed medical practice as we now know it in pathology practice. So uh, I'll just relate a, a short story. As a med student, I was seeking guidance and role models towards the research career, as I discussed. And somebody recommended, one of the faculty said, I should go see Dr. Grogan. He's kind of a dynamic guy. And, uh, you know, while the details happened almost 40 years ago, I do remember visiting his lab, uh, him standing in his bench pipetting. You know, and I was asking him, like, well, you know, how do you pick a research project? How do you how do you judge research projects? And, and again, I don't remember the exact words, but, but what he basically said was, you need to see how you react to it, basically to see how the spirit moves you. And so this advice, and, and this stuck with me, uh, it, you know, essentially to see what kind of emotional attachment you have to a project once you actually experience it uh, was, was great advice, it was spot on. And it was actually what allowed me to have the confidence to, to go into developmental biology for a period of my career. So he, he writes in this book that he himself has benefited uh, from the most recent advances in diagnostics and cancer therapy. He was actually had a, he talks about this in the book. Uh, he had a, a melanoma a few years ago and was treated with uh, successfully with a checkpoint inhibitor. And so at a recent visit to, to Tucson as an employee, I had a chance to sit down with him and catch up. And it was really nice to see that he's, uh, st- you know, deft and vigorous, uh, an uh, active contributor. He, he's super excited about the future of pathology and it was very encouraging to me personally and within the organization. Uh, I really treasure that um, encouragement. Uh, so you might guess based on the content of our conversation today that I'll be focusing on uh, project-wise on digital pathology and multiplexing and somehow helping to combine the two to help pave the way for, for future diagnostics. Let's keep going then with, with digital pathology because you know we've been hearing <laughs> for years digital pathology is the future. And some a lot of people, I think, are saying the future is now. But we still aren't seeing widespread use of digital pathology. So right. I'm wondering, in your opinion, what do you think that's going to take? I think uh, it's getting closer and a bit, maybe a bit like the pandemic. It's not progressing at the same speed in every geography. It, but I do hope it's not as distant as uh, when I was growing up, as, as it was stated that cold fusion will be in our future. Like it was always <laughs> quoted as, mm. what, 25 years in the future. And so here we are 25 years later and it's still... 25 years in the future. I mean, there are persistent barriers to widespread adoption of digital pathology. There's a lot of people that have compared 
uh, pathology to radiology and the digital conversion. I, I won't go through the list of those similarities and differences, but I do think we have as a discipline something to learn from other disciplines. A major gap right now is, is um, well, I- I infrastructure investment, mostly in the form of uh, IT and uh, scanner systems and, and you know, tools uh, to, to simply support an activity. Uh, I will say that the DPA, Digital Pathology Association, uh, CAP, and, and other uh, evangelists and leaders in the area have in, in the area have given the given individuals really uh, important advice about adoption of digital pathology, and I think there's more confidence in it. I, I think typically a site needs to initially decide to do it for something and not for everything because to do it for everything it, it may not be useful for anything so really defining the use cases is an important piece uh we, we did talk a bit about the pathologist cockpit i think these these tools and systems have to be incredibly efficient uh for pathologists uh, they have to make the experience pleasurable and their work more efficient but what will get them excited i think is new capabilities including ai data integration. I don't see really any incentives other than, you know, charity and maybe some competition around the investment here. This is a capital investment. It's a recurring investment. And there maybe need to be some changes around the regulatory uh, paradigm around the so-called pixel pathway, where that allows more open systems that are uh, more readily validated in, in, in the lab in which they're used for a particular purpose. And, and I will say, just if we think about historically what led to the adoption of EMR, at least in the U.S., again, with its pluses and minuses, th- this led to an act, it was an act of Congress, the American uh, Reinvestment Recovery Act of 2009, I believe it's called, uh, in which case uh, it mandated that practices have these systems in place within a certain period of time. So that was a huge incentive for investment in, this, in, in these systems to equip healthcare organizations to track data in this way. So you may have heard uh, some CPT codes have now been created around the use of digital pathology. They're still not reimbursed, but those it's oh, a yes. good first step. Uh, you know, and one thing I just one factor I think is really important is just um, you know generational. And, and I will say this: I'm I'm getting a little older, and I I I'm not resistant to change, but I recognize that changing is a little harder when you get a little older. That's fair. But I will say this next generation of pathologists that are getting trained, they're social media savvy, they're education oriented, they're, they use computers all the time. So I think they're going to bang their fist on the table and demand digital pathology be, be available for them in jobs. And that may, may be, be, that may be what it takes. Because I mm, think in 20 okay. years, it'll be, you know, you may have a microscope in the corner collecting dust or for... QC when there's a power outage, but they're going to need these systems to do their work. So, and then I think if you look at what motivates pathologists in general to do what they do, you know, they, they look at tissue, they, they look at uh, the results of tests on tissue. They look at, uh, they integrate this data. They want to help patients. They want to help clinicians. They're, you know, the doctor's doctor, so to speak. So if we give them tools to better reveal these secrets to, uh, to, to see what cannot be seen, then that, that can only be a good thing, right? That, that, that will be a necessity of pathologist demands uh, in the future. So some of these new tools are being developed jointly by pharma, diagnostics companies. Some are 
you know, single site at central labs or, or especially offered uh, at cancer centers. So each of these settings, each of these venues has a unique and overlapping, or largely non-overlapping rather role to play. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, I think we have to align these parties in some through some mechanism to create diagnostics that are standardized from the get-go, right? I, I think one example recently that uh, started in about 2015 is the is the PDL one story, which in which uh, the initial use of the marker for to inform the use of a drug um, was was really not standardized up front. There are different ways to measure. There are different clones, different platforms, different ways to measure. The, uh, the distribution of, of PDL1 in different tumors, and it's created a lot of confusion in pathology practice. So I do think that pathologists as a group will need to be more involved up front in future companion diagnostics before they're actually widely adopted, especially if there's, in, this, in essence, two tests studying the same thing, but that are interpreted differently, you know, released at about the same time, which is the case of uh, PDL one That really is another story, perhaps for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's, and it's in progress as we know. Right. Yeah. And see, that's the thing, like from what, what you've been saying here today and, and many of the other people that I've talked with on this podcast, it sounds like pathology in the next five to 10 years is going to be even more exciting with with all these new developments kind of taking hold and getting more widespread use. So I, this is an exciting time to be in this field. I'm incredibly excited, thrilled, and, and privileged to be here. And and frankly, I, I just maybe a, a, a closing comment. Like I, I, based on the the research work I did with multiplex and developmental biology, I I could kind of predict where we would be with applying those to medical care. I think two things that have kind of come in out of left field that are really accelerating understanding or the potential to understand dramatically. One is just, as I mentioned, the single cell biology field where, where the definitions of cell types is no longer primarily based on belief, but rather based on uh, a method that explores kind of the total universe of possibilities and in a, more of a hypothesis-free fashion identifies the genetic or uh, transcriptomic or proteomic markers that define cell function. So this has really advanced dramatically in the last few years. And then the second piece, and this is way out of left field, is just all the work that the data scientists and the data competent pathologists have done making AI, using AI to interrogate H&E sections, again, Mm -hmm. completely separately, right? Because they're, these, they're, they're, lots of archives of thousands to millions of slides that can be studied with these tools. And, and they're the, the amount of, of, of a number of exciting things that are coming out of this work, again, completely independent of labeling, just based totally on the H and E slide is, is, is totally fascinating. So I, I think spatial biology brings these together in a way, I hope I, I dream that uh, will, will basically be the, the, the ground truth and the, the basis of future diagnostics. Yep. Yep. I like it. And that, that, that sounds like a, a good place to end. You know, th- this, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Wharton, you know, and kind of going through your career and all these sort of exciting developments that you've been a, been a part of. I think that that's really, uh, those are really good stories. Uh, Dr. Keith Wharton, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. Much appreciated. Thank you.
If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Ralph Hoos as we talk about his work in molecular pathology. And these were the early days also of molecular pathology. So PCR just entered the, the routine diagnostics that we could detect even, even um, let's say, a small amount of cells. So minimal residual disease was, was a totally new word. So everything that seems natural and, and obvious to us today was, was new. And tissue, again, at the time, became a little bit old-fashioned because everybody thought one can do everything, also pathology, by you know, molecular stuff. So mine, grinding and mining the tissue. But I actually got, got really intrigued by combining the, the tissue and, and um, its molecular insights and, and the experimental uh, let's say, aspects of, of all the models we had in our hands. And this is when I returned to Germany and uh, completed my residency and, and fellowship in, in pathology. You can hear more from Dr. Ralph Hoos in episode 97. Okay, great big thanks to Dr. Keith Wharton. I'll keep this short since this episode is a little bit longer than usual, but we've really covered a lot of ground in this one. So I feel like this was worth it, and I hope you do too. I think it's really interesting to look back and see how some of these technologies started. And of course, Dr. Wharton was there at the beginning of some of these as they were becoming popular. And then to look forward and see what new things might be coming in the future and how the field will evolve to allow all of us to provide better patient care. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.